0: If you got sick and couldn't work, what benefits would the NHS pay you? Even worse, if you were to die, what benefits could your spouse and other dependents get when you die? If you're not sure, then today's podcast is for you as we give a nice overview of the benefits that the NHS pension gives you and we talk about the differences between income protection, critical illness and life insurance and we also cover how these benefits change if you're not in the NHS pension scheme, if you're opted out for any reason. Finally, we delve into the murky world of financial advisors and how to make sure that you get the right policy for the right price. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantilow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice, and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. We don't use a video for anything, it's just so that we can be more like human beings.
1: Though you look very smart this morning. i I wasn't sure so i put a shirt
0: (laughs) yeah i had some inside information which is why i look like i do (laughs) so on today's medics money podcast it is my pleasure to introduce daniel foy who is the healthcare protection specialist at mazar's hi daniel hi tommy Tell me about what the Healthcare Protection Specialist does.
1: So a lot of our clients that come through for the healthcare inquiries, a lot of their problems come down to pretty specific queries. And in a lot of circumstances, one of the main needs that we see in the healthcare space is a need for insurance, protection, the like. And so I have developed into a role which is now all those queries typically come through me and my colleagues. Any questions, people will head to me to understand exactly what cover is needed and how we deal with things.
0: Yeah, interesting that you have a specific sort of person, you specializing in healthcare, because as we're going to see, the protection needs of doctors are slightly complicated and definitely do need a specialist. So, why don't we just get straight into it and let's have a think about what protection members of the nhs pension have in place by default so just run through what benefits the active members are we saying of the nhs pension scheme get by default because there's some pretty nice benefits in there that a lot of people realize
1: the reason I think that that's one of the things that we always try and get across as a starting point. As you said, it's important to differentiate those who are active members of the NHS pension scheme, receive different benefits to those who maybe are not an active member. So the first instance that we always run through is sick pay. For a lot of NHS employees, sick pay looks like, so if you're off work for six months, you will receive your full pay. Thereafter, from month seven to month 12, your pay is reduced by 50%. And then from month 13 onwards, you are then in a position where you are reliant on statutory sick pay. Now, if you are a GP partner, that might be slightly different because you have a partnership agreement. Your sick pay is relevant to that. And for the first five years of service, your sick pay is typically matched. So from your sixth year onwards, you receive six and six, as I've just explained. However, in your first five years, that works on a sliding scale. So in your first year of service, you receive one month full pay, one month half pay. Second year of service, two and two, so on and so forth, until you get to the six and six.
0: Yeah. So that's important for younger doctors then. So in your first year, you just get
1: one, one full, one half. Exactly that. If you've had continuous service your pay will continue increasing across that sliding scale. But if, for example, you maybe take a break out the NHS and then come back after a certain period, you could well find yourself going back into that one and one So it's always important to just consider what protection you've got. But as a standard kind of example, that 12-month or six-month and six-month cover is not universally given in other professions and other industries. So it's a pretty good benefit to start with is the sick pay.
0: Awesome. Then what about... If the worst happens and you were to die in service, death in service?
1: Yeah, so the death in service is the particular one I think a lot of people are aware of. And typically, if you're an active member of the NHS pension scheme, you receive two times your reckonable pensionable pay. So if you have earnings of, let's say, £60,000 and you pass away, your nominated beneficiary will receive two times 60000 £120,000 as a lump sum tax-free on your death.
0: Okay. And I think this is something that is not widely known, that the spouse and children's pension, is it worth going through those?
1: Yes. Yeah, so if you pass away and you have accrued a pension to date, depending on which pension scheme you're in, so they do slightly differ between the 95, the 2008 and the 2015 pension scheme. But for simple purposes, we're all in the 2015 pension scheme from this point onwards. So the 2015 pension scheme, your spouse would receive... An adult's pension of 33.75% of the notional age pension. What that means is whatever your pension is worth to the point of your death, you're an active member, they will receive that pension at 33.75. As I say, the percentage is slightly increased for the 95 and the 2008. So it's 50% in the 95, which I think is what people are more accustomed to. They expect it to be an automatic 50% spouse's pension. That reduces down in the 2015 scheme. So they don't receive quite as much. There is also a children's pension to be received. And this is something that can be received up to a child's 23rd birthday. So for any young children that you have, there is a children's pension of 16.875% of the pension accrued, assuming you would have continued through to retirement. Now, the reason I say that is because you actually receive, if you're 10 years away from retirement and the pension that you have built up is X, you will receive X plus an uplift that would assume you'd continued working at your current level through to retirement.
0: Interesting. Okay, so this is why you have a healthcare protection specialist. Because (laughs) if you just went to, you know, a broker on the high street, then might not know about all of these protections that come baked into the pension, if you're an active member, as we said. So let's say a doctor comes to you, and they have no protection or anything. So what are the key things to think about when protecting yourself or your family?
1: The first thing that I would always start off with someone is the key point to make is you are protecting against worst case scenarios. So as an example, one thing that we come across quite often is people who have something like income protection to age 60, but their pensions don't commence until 65 or 67 or state pension age until later. And the question is, well, what would you fund yourself with for five or seven or eight years? And they say, well, my retirement age that I want to retire is 60. We're not insuring when you would like to retire. We're insuring the worst case scenario. And we always have to think in that mindset of what if the worst happened? Are you suitably comfortable? So I think that is kind of, again, it's just a mindset. And of course, we all think we're invincible and it's not going to happen. Or we like to think so. But when we do get into these positions, it's a very hard mindset shift to really just think very, very worst case. And then outside of that, the question that I would always ask people is what are we actually ensuring? A lot of people go for an insurance and they just say, I just want a lump sum of money because it's the most simple life insurance that we all know. Look, if I die, I just want a lump sum of money to be paid to my spouse, my family and pay off a mortgage, for example. But when we actually break down what you're trying to insure or what you need to insure, the simple things to think about. Are you insuring a lump sum, a mortgage? Insure it with a lump sum. Are you insuring an income, something like school fees? Well, a lump sum doesn't necessarily work in that case. So you want an income. So I always break it down. What we're trying to ensure if you want lump sum paying off, cover it with a lump sum. If you want an income paying off, pay it with an income. And similarly, if it's something to do with losing your income, such as income protection, that's generally going to be covered with an income. So it's always kind of a logical assessment of understanding what costs do you have now? What might continue in the future? What might either change in the future or increase or decrease? And subsequently, what is the relevant policies that we need to put in place? Sometimes people try and fit that with a one policy cover all, And generally, that's not usually the best way to go because you can never quite fit all of your protection needs into one policy.
0: Yeah. And it's just
1: going to be different for everybody as well, isn't it? It is. So, you know, as I touched on now, generally, when we look at different people at different life stages, you would have things like mortgages, maybe school fees, maybe loss of earnings. But everyone will view those differently. And two people might be on the same pay scale in the NHS doing the same job. But two separate families will have two separate protection needs because of priorities and wider family circumstances. And so there's no real one shop fits all although they'll generally be kind of common problems that we will see in the NHS, everyone will have slightly different needs and different insurances.
0: Some of our listeners might be aware of there's sort of different types of protection. So is it worth running through the main types and what they protect against, if that makes sense?
1: Absolutely. So there are three things really that you cover against. One of which is an illness, a loss of earnings, being out of work. And I think in most people's circumstances, being in the NHS means that you are, generally, this is the key risk. What if your income suddenly were to stop because of ill health? Because whilst you're alive, whilst you're continuing to work, you're going to be able to be in a position to dictate in certain ways what your income will look like and generally be able to maintain your standard of living. The one key risk to that is if your income stops. And that's where income protection comes in, which is simply a policy that if you go off sick, in line with the NHS sick pay, that policy will step in and ensure that you as a household or as an individual continue to receive a set amount in your bank each month to pay for your bills, your upkeep, your food on the table so that you can focus on ultimately getting yourself better and getting yourself back to work. On top of that, there's a different insurance policy, which is critical illness, which is for more severe illnesses, as the name might suggest. Things like, and this is not an exhaustive list, but things like your cancers, your heart attacks, your strokes are the three key critical illnesses that people may suffer in their lifetime. And as such, you can pay for a policy that will provide a lump sum should any of those things happen to you. This is something that we see quite often in the NHS pension schemes, people who have older critical illness policies, and rightly so, it has a valuable benefit there should anything happen in those circumstances. The third and final insurance is fairly simplistic in terms of it covers if you were to pass away. And in most circumstances, a lot of people associate that with a lump sum payout. And again, the most common one that we will see is it pays a lump sum, which will pay off your mortgage on death. That is the most common insurance I think everyone will see because we all get told when we buy a house, we need some insurance to cover the mortgage. There are also policies in place which will provide an income should you die. And this is something that we see more and more often now in the NHS because ultimately if one person passes away, does the other person have enough household income to support the household expenses? It may be that there's one particular breadwinner in the house, and should that person pass away, then the other person in the house needs additional income to supplement the needs of the house and the family. And again, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier. If you're looking for an income, a replacement income, cover it with an income because a lump sum, typically at a point in time when someone is grieving the loss of a loved one, The worst thing that you can do is put a large lump sum of cash in their bank and ask them to go make sensible financial decisions. Just having something that pays into their bank every month, almost like another wage, means they don't have to go out, seek advice on how to invest it, how to manage their money. So the life insurance does come with the two options, which is either a lump sum or an income. And as I say, that's something that's becoming more and more common in the nhs space
0: i like that as well it's kind of simple so you know cover a lump sum like your mortgage with a lump sum type of insurance and cover an income like your income with an income insurance it makes perfect sense but now that you said it it makes perfect sense so it's always good to learn from your mistakes but it's even better to learn from other people's mistakes so what (laughs) common mistakes do you see people making that our podcast listeners can hopefully avoid?
1: first thing that I would always start off with is income protection. And I say this because, as I touched on before, and it may well come across as I keep banging the drum on income protection in the NHS, for me, it's the most important protection that people in the NHS need. But what we typically see is people who, for example, consultants going through different pay scales they put in place their income protection when they're on their training contract or just come to the end of their training contract. And 10 years later, they're still on the same income protection, even though their earnings have substantially increased from what they were previously. Similarly, what you'll have is people who move from a salary GP role into a GP partner role. And as I touched on, the sick pay from those two arrangements differs. One has six and six month, one has a flat 12 month. And that isn't always updated. What you will always see with income protection is when you get to the point of claiming on these policies, if your earnings does not support what your claim is, they will reduce your claim accordingly. You won't get any refund for the contributions and the premiums that you've paid, but you will get a reduced payout. So it's always worth just coming back every now and again and checking is what I've got still applicable. Because Ultimately, it's best to find out now and make sure that it's suitable rather than get to the point of claim and either not have enough paid out or find out that you've been paying premiums that you're not getting the benefit of. A couple of other things that I typically see is a lot of people have critical illness. A lot of people have legacy critical illness policies covering their mortgage. So life and critical illness, which pays out and covers their mortgage. I would always ask, is that really necessary? Because critical illness is a fairly expensive policy because of The likelihood, as I mentioned, things like cancer, strokes, heart attacks. Unfortunately, we live in a world where those are becoming more and more common. I don't need to tell your listeners about that anyway. But having the critical illness to pay off the mortgage, if you've got a suitable income protection, what you ultimately have is you have income protection policy, which covers your mortgage repayments each month. So your mortgage can be maintained. And then you have a critical illness policy, which pays off your mortgage. So, one of those two things isn't needed because you've tried to cover the same thing with two fairly costly policies, both of which are trying to cover your mortgage. And so, why do you need both? You typically need one.
0: Yeah. And how would that scenario arise? Would that just be someone doing it themselves or someone getting incorrect advice? Because I see that quite a lot. And I just think, how have you got into that kind of position?
1: It is something that has been advised quite widely in the past. I think a lot of advisors, again, Sadly, circumstances at the time have dictated that the policies that they've put in place are not necessarily relevant now. And as I say, it just comes back to, it might be that someone got critical illness policy when they bought their house. And then later on, as they've progressed through their career, they've added on income protection and never necessarily thought about what they've already got. So I think it's a natural kind of evolution through people's career paths that they don't go back and revisit what they've already got. People just tend to add on more policies and end up in a position where you are as I say, having multiple policies covering the same thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on this already, but some people, or hopefully a lot of people listening to this, will already have policies in place. Or I really hope that you do. So what should they do? Because they might be like, well, I took it out when I was an F1. I'm sorted for life,
1: right? And that's it. It's just keep reviewing those policies. Keep the policy documents to hand, and it can be every four or five years. Just make sure you're having a glance over those policy documents and you're seeing what was my salary when I took this policy out. Even write that number on the policy documents that you've got that you file away. When you take it out, have a look at the policy document, see what your salary was at the start, compare that to what it is now, and ask yourself, is that still in the same ballpark? Or do I really need to take another look at these policies? Again, has your circumstances changed? Has the family changed? Maybe, have you married? Have you divorced? Have you had children? What does your family circumstances look like? All of those are usually good trigger points. And there are certain insurers who will allow you to change your policies at certain life events because they acknowledge that life events happen. Buying a new house, for example, will allow you to go back within six months of the purchase date and change your policy and getting a promotion they'll allow you to do that. So all these things are built into providers. You can openly liaise with your providers and ask them exactly what cover you have in place and is it actually relevant.
0: Awesome. That was a really great summary of all of the issues. Can we change tack slightly? We kind of hinted at this at the start because we said these are the benefits if you're an active member of the NHS pension scheme. What is the impact of opting out of the NHS pension scheme on all those benefits that we talked about at the start?
1: So the difference between the two is actually quite, quite stark in terms of the death benefits. And the reason why we touched on that and we differentiate is because a lot of people take this decision to come out of the pension scheme for different reasons. But commonly, we see lifetime allowance, annual allowance issues are the reasons why people may well come out of the pension scheme. And they do it for the reasons of those certain circumstances, but not necessarily realising what they're giving up in return. So when I talked about earlier death in service, lump sum of two times your reckonable pensionable pay, that gets lost if you pass away. And what you receive instead is 2.25 times your annual pension for the 95 scheme and 2.025 for the 2015 scheme. So in that circumstance, it's whatever pension you have accrued to date times 2.025 is what you receive rather than two times your reckonable pensionable pay.
0: So I'm thinking I'm doing public arithmetic here which is always dangerous but if you think about that logically hopefully i have thought about this logically if you're really young and you opt out of the nhs pension scheme potentially you've got a lot more to lose because if you're in you get two times reckonable if you're out you get 2.25 times your annual pension with the caveats that you mentioned for the other schemes so when you're young your annual pension is going to be comparatively kind of low right have i thought that through logically or not
1: Absolutely, logically. Typically, people are coming out of the pension scheme because they are higher earners. So their two times reckonable pay will generally be in excess of a couple of hundred thousand pounds worth of lump sum. Whereas anyone who's coming out for lifetime allowance problems, you would generally see that their pension should be in the ballpark of 45,000 to 50,000 as a top end figure. Yep, And those kind of Numbers mean you're going from a position of a couple of hundred thousand pounds to a position where top end I would expect to see it at around about the 90 to 100,000 pounds figure. So there's quite a substantial difference, probably two or three times of what you would see as a death in service benefit from the scheme. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. And you also have an impact on the dependents pension, I believe, if you
1: are out of the pension. That's correct. Yes. So the pension, what I talked about earlier on is. If you pass away while you're in service, you get an uplift, assuming that you had continued in service through to retirement. If you are a deferred member and you've come out of the NHS pension scheme, you lose the value of that uplift. So again, for someone who may be late 50s, early 60s, where you've got a couple of years to go until normal retirement age, that might not be such a big impact. But if you're coming out much earlier than that, kind of in excess of 10 years of retirement age, that uplift is quite substantial that you are effectively giving up for your spouse or your children.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So the children's pension is affected as well? The children's is. So again, it comes back to whatever the pension value is at the day that you leave is what you get at the 16% figure, as opposed to the 16% figure plus an uplift for everything for your next 20 years. 15, 10 years of service, however far away from normal retirement age you are. So it's the uplift that's the key difference. The percentages stay fairly similar, but the uplift between now and retirement or date of death and retirement is what you effectively lose.
0: So that's definitely something to bear in mind if you are currently not in the pension scheme. All right, that was a really good summary of all of the issues for people to think about. Now, somebody's needing help or got no policies, Can they just set these up themselves? Like, why would they use an advisor?
1: Absolutely. So all of this stuff is policies that you can go in and do yourself. And I would certainly encourage, if that's the way that you would rather do it, please go in and do the research and get some policies in place and make sure you are adequately protected. What we often see is there are certain providers who offer different perks, different benefits. And the key difference between going through an advisor and not going through an advisor is just making sure you find that right provider. So the key thing that I would always encourage listeners to question is, if you are going through an advisor, is the advisor independent? Or are they tied to offering their own products or a certain range of products? If they're independent, they're able to just go to the market, see who will offer you the right rather best price. And typically that will always drive down costs for you. And that's one of the key benefits. Really is making sure that you get the right cover at the right cost, because not all providers will acknowledge things like NHS sick And so if you go with one provider who maybe doesn't match up on that first five year service, for example, what you could find is that your cover isn't necessarily what you thought it was going to be. Or you still end up having gaps purely because you've picked the wrong provider.
0: Yeah, let me just go back a bit. I'm glad you opened the independent versus restricted can of worms because this is something that we passionately believe in. And that is why every advisor on Medics Money is an independent advisor and not a restricted or tied advisor. So yeah, let's just go with that. Just leave that one there because I always get a lot of emails from restricted advisors every time we mention that. Strangely, I yes. don't know. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's, it's not a can of worms as far as I'm concerned. If you go with an independent advisor, they can select a policy that is suitable for you from the whole market. If you go with restricted, you may not get that. Is that fair?
1: That's exactly the situation. And that typically does have a knock on effect to costs. Now, there's nothing to say that a restrictive policy can't be a very good policy. Yep. But typically, you can find that same policy for different prices elsewhere. And so it's always worth just scouring the market and making sure that you have something effective at a good cost. And I think that that's the key difference is making sure that you are getting what you are paying for, but you're paying the right price for what you're getting.
0: Yeah, exactly that. And a lot of the restricted advisors don't make it that clear that they're restricted on their website for whatever reason. And if you've got any problem with that as a restricted advisor, it's at Mazars for the hate mail, not me again. And the other thing that you said is that some policies can tie in with that tearing up of the NHS sick pace. So policy would increase in line with that. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So a lot of providers now have ultimately cottoned onto the fact that NHS employees have very specialist terms and conditions in their contracts. And so what they do is the certain providers that we use for income protection where needed, if we put in that that person is, for example, a doctor or a medical professional, we can write it on the kind of six and six, and I refer to six and six, as we talked about earlier, the six and six month basis. But because you've written the fact that your employment is classified as it is, what they will do is they will automatically recognise you as NHS sick pay and they will have a policy that matches whatever the NHS sick pay is. There are certain other benefits the providers will offer just because of the fact that you are in the NHS. Things like allowing you to reduce your income and go reduce your sessions, reduce your PAs down to different levels. There are different classifications that they will use, but because you say you're NHS, you get slightly different perks of the policies with some providers who are trying to really push themselves as, again, specialists in the field and the go-to providers for your listeners.
0: Awesome. Good to know. And I know that as an independent advisor, this will be made very, very clear to anyone that uses you anyway. But for the benefit of everyone else, how do advisors like you get paid? Say I come to you, you do all the assessments, I take out a load of policies. How do you get paid?
1: So there are one of two ways that we can do that. There is either we can charge you a fixed fee for the work that we are doing or what is most common is I think a lot of people are more familiar with this method and it is most commonly used is we receive a commission back from a provider. So when we set up the policy, based on the premiums, the term, and all the specifics of the policy that we've put in place, the provider will choose and will have a set rate of commission that they will pay us as our fee for setting all of this up. So ultimately what that means is your listeners don't have to pay a fixed fee upfront and find the cash to pay the advice. It does result in a small increase in your monthly premiums. It effectively means that that fee is being spread over the course of the policy rather than paid upfront in one go out of your pocket. What I will always say is if you do go through an advisor or you go direct, the premiums should still look the same, even if you are using commission. The reason why is a lot of the providers, if they are taking, doing it direct, the commission that they would have earned goes back into their marketing and kind of business development strategies, which because they've just gone through an advisor, they don't necessarily have to do. So the premiums still look the same, whether you do it through an advisor or you do it through yourself. It just so happens that they pay our fee. For you, so the listeners typically don't have any upfront costs. And that's the same if we are reviewing existing policies, as typically we would always sit down, have a look at the policies, and then decide what we need to be doing.
0: Yeah, I think that's really great that you offer the fixed fee, which may be right for some individuals, and obviously the usual commission based payments as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Daniel. I'll put your contact details in the show notes below if anyone wants to get a hold of you. Any parting
1: words of wisdom for our listeners? I think the main thing to do is just have a look over what you've got. If you're not sure if what you've got is right, ask the question. If you're not sure if it's still relevant, speak to your provider, speak to an independent broker, and ultimately make sure that you just ask the question. It's always best done while it's kind of a nagging thought in the back of your mind, because... At the point in time you're trying to claim on these policies, it's too late. It's, you know, spending half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour of your day, just going through your policies and making sure you're right will cause a lot less heartache for you and your family at the point in time you need these policies and you find out they're not what you thought they were going to be.
0: Exactly that. And I think the peace of mind that I get from knowing that if I do die, that my family is going to be perfectly protected and not have to worry about money. It is pretty priceless, to be honest. So yeah, just have a think about that. And I think if you took out a policy when you were a junior doctor and you're not sure if it was with an independent or restricted advisor and you're now a consultant, you know, definitely think about reviewing those policies as well. Thank you so much for that, Daniel. That was really useful and interesting to our listeners. And I look forward to having you back on the Medics Money podcast in due course.
1: Thank you, Tommy. Thank you.